Welcome to this week's episode of The Running Effect with Dominic Schleter. I'm your host, Dominic. And today we have a super special guest, Michael Bergman. Michael um, is just such an amazing person, human being. He has so many amazing stories. I was smiling this whole episode. Um, just so many amazing stories that have shaped him into the person who he is today. He is easily one of the most successful people I've ever had the privilege of speaking to. He has so many components of his life that are just crazy as we go into in this episode. So in this episode, we go through his super successful life so far and all the components that have shaped him into the person he is today. We'll explore his time at Nike. He has so many amazing stories. He was actually the 680th employee at Nike. That's just crazy to think about. Um, He sold shoes and tested them at Nike at 16 years old. So many uh, amazing stories at Nike that will put a smile on your face. He worked there for 31 years, which is just crazy. Super cool. So we go through that and then we go into everything he's doing with Portland Track and his um, company incubator you. Um, In this episode, we seek to understand some of the biggest lessons he's learned along the way, and hopefully we can apply those to our everyday life, becoming better runners and people along the way. So this episode is super special. I really, really enjoyed it. It was such a pleasure to to speak with Michael. He's just such an amazing man and so successful. So it was awesome to get his advice and wisdom and hear his story. Um, So this is a super special podcast. If you're new to the show, please like, subscribe, and share. It would really mean a lot. But without further ado, here's my amazing conversation with the man, the myth, the legend, Michael Bergman. Michael, how are you doing this fine evening? I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited to have this conversation. And starting out our conversation, I have two warm-up questions that I like to ask every single guest. Michael, I know you are a super busy man with a lot of demands, so I'm interested to know what a normal day in the life looks like for you. Well, a normal day in the life, I don't sleep very much, so I get up um, wake up around five thirty. My wife and I have our coffee. We uh, we get this coffee from Costa Rica that is, you know, the way that we start every day for the last twelve years. Mm, sounds great. Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great blend. We we discovered it when we were down there a few years back, and um, we uh, yeah. So we ba- I basically get on the email and check out you know, what's going on. And, you know, I don't have a, you know, a real defined schedule now that I'm uh, rewired from Nike and uh, have my own consulting firm, but it's really about identifying some of the things, both personal and business that I have to work on. So Mm -hmm. so that's really, you know, yeah. So the day is really blended among, you know, just different interactions with, uh, the stuff that I'm doing, but then also personal stuff. Um, and then always trying to get in a workout. Gotcha. Awesome. Okay. The second warm up question, um, which is a little more of a fun one is if you had Gordon Ramsay coming over for dinner, what would you make for him? I think my go-to, uh, meal 
is that all of my kids love is are my burgers on the Traeger. Ooh. So, I, and I know that that's, <laughs> that's probably not anything special to him, but, um, you know, I have a couple secret ingredients that I put into the, the, the organic beef to make it really that makes it pop yep there you go well that's similar to my dad i think one of his better dishes is burgers as plain as it sounds it must be a dad thing um so i'm looking forward to when i become a dad maybe my burger burger game will um become a little better but that's that's really funny okay going into a little more normal subjects and just kind of going through your career and life so far can you take us back to kind of your childhood growing up? What was your life like and what were some of your biggest interests? Um, growing up, uh, I, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I had three siblings. Um, I would say starting in, you know, probably early on, I was a pretty active kid. And, um, you know, before third grade, I would actually got myself into a little bit of trouble um because of that energy level and i had the opportunity to uh my mom and dad found a track team which ironically is portland track club um to for me to join and i literally started running cross country and hiking boots and and then kind of (laughs) grew up um you know started to uh expel some of that energy so running has always been a big part of my life, um, even from third, fourth grade on. Um, the Portland Track Club, you know, is a good group of people that I still stay in touch with a lot of them. Um, it was led by, you know, a teacher named Betty Martin, who basically was, you know, an amazing woman just to get kids off the street and, you know, focus their energy. And one of my teammates was uh, uh, Jamie Mitchell, who happens to be Galen Rupp's mom. Oh, wow. How neat. That's really awesome. Um, one thing I love about this podcast is just hearing fun stories like that. That's really, really awesome. Do you stay in touch with her to this day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I see her, you know, when Galen runs the Portland Track Festival, I see, you know, Jamie and her mom. And, you know, we've, we've stayed in touch. You know, well, you know, Portland's a big, small town. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people know each other. So yeah. It's, it's great. That's awesome. So... Yeah, so Going a little more into that, um, in your running as a, a child, um, what are some of the ways you think running has changed? Because that was a while ago. Um, like, what was it like running in Portland during that time? Because obviously you had a big Nike presence there with Phil Knight and Prefontaine. Um, so first off, what was that like? And then also, how do you think running has changed over the years up until today? Yeah, well, I'd say um, it was actually before Nike. And because some of my first bikes were Adidas and Basics. Um, so that was like an early 70s. And Nike was just kind of an emerging company that really um, was just, you know, showing up on the scene a little bit. And so they, you know, I think just we were really lucky to have that, you know, in Portland. There are a few stores called the Athletic Department where I would hang out and try to gather shoes and, you know, try to convince them to, to let me test them or you know, get the latest version. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and I'd say, you know, the Oregon Roadrunners Club was a big presence here outside of, you know, some of the, the age group AAU track stuff. 
Um, and so I'd say, you know, the, the culture has always been here. And I, I would say the, in the seventies, the, both the track and the road racing scenes were, you know, very community oriented. They weren't fundraisers, you know, one of my favorite, um, races, uh, in the late seventies was this thing called the council crest hill run. It was a point to point two and a half mile run up to the top of council crest, which is about six or 700 foot elevation gain in two and a half miles. And it was sponsored by a local grocery store. And you basically would get to pick groceries as your, as your prize. Yeah. And I couldn't, I was too young to pick the beer. So I had to pick the the Gatorade that was just coming out at the time. So that's super, super neat as well. That's a great story. Um, do you remember having any running idols you looked up to back then? Or were you not as big of a fan of the sport? Oh, no, I was a huge fan. And I and I actually would go down to Hayward and watch Pre and, um, you know, Prefontaine. And, and I actually saw his last race. Um, oh, wow. 13. Um, and that was, you know, heartbreaking as a 13, 14-year-old, you know, young man. Um, you know, I also got to know a lot of his teammates when I first started working at Nike, they were early, you know, managers of the retail store. So I had, you know, pretty good interaction with, you know, some of the top, you know, runners, you know, out of Oregon. And then, you know, we'd always be at the, you know, I would think we were at the 72 Olympic trials and 76. Um, so that was, that was always, you know, pretty special to be at. Mm -hmm. Um, And then and being part of that so yeah so skipping a bunch of years um you just talked about nike and we've kind of had a general overview of them talking about pre and other athletes who ran for them um can you take us through why you decided to start working at nike and additionally was that a dream of yours as a kid high school student or even in college to work for nike no it wasn't really a dream it just seemed to make sense so just you know, I was, I ran at Jackson High School as a pretty solid, um, this middle distance runner. We had a pretty, pretty good state of athletes. Um, in fact, this year, I think the 1500 was finally deeper than this, the 1500 meter race when I was growing up. Um, I was sixth place and with like a 356, 1500 at the state meet. Um, so that was, uh, you know, so I, back then, um, like right as soon as I got my, um, license, I, you know, I knew where the Nike office was and I drove over there one day and, you know, knocked on the door and asked if they needed any shoes tested. Cause I was actually trying to, you know, convince them into letting me test some shoes. And as a, you know, and this is one of those serendipitous moments that, you can actually, um, you know, sometimes you just have to take a little bit of a risk. And so I went in and, and it basically, they, they needed someone to help. They didn't have a full wear testing roster. And so I walked out of there with three cases of shoes Wow! to bring to, to bring to my high school. And they were like non, they were like promo shoes. They had different colors they weren't retail 
And basically I took him into my high school and my, the high school team that I, you know, was part of, they were one of the first wear testing organizations. Wow. What a story. Yeah. So, so, and, and as a 16 year old, I basically, you know, was pretty responsible and, um, collected all the wear test feedback and any shoes that, you know, basically were destroyed or had bad wear patterns or whatever and brought it back into, um, you know, the wear testing department at Nike. So, so it just, it continued, basically I continued to get products to, you know, and our school was the coolest one around because they had these pretty special (laughs) shoes that, you know, they'd show up at the track meets and people like, where did you get those? Wow. So Yeah. So it was pretty, and so that was kind of my, you know, 16. And then I started working, uh, at the retail outlet, which was the, uh, store called the athletic department, which is now a brand at Nike. Um, and that was in, at the Beaverton mall, which is now about a mile from where the current Nike campus is. And some of the former U of O runners, Dave Taylor, um, Terry Williams, you know, all these, you know, guys that ran with pre were kind of the managers, their early employees at Nike and they were the managers and so I, I was a high school kid working at the shoe store, which was great because I got the discount. And, and I still remember Phil Knight and Phil and Penny Knight and their kids coming in and, you know, taking shoes. I'm like, who are those guys? <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to, and that's how casual it was at the time. And they, you know, Nike had to have this, um, these retail outlets because no other, uh, retail outlet would take this new brand of shoes. So they had to create their own called the athletic department. So, so wow. that, and I worked at one of the first ones there, um, went through high school and, um, even into college. So I'd work summers there. So my employee number is incredibly low. 680 is my employee number at Nike from starting point. So I wouldn't say it was a dream. It was just, you know, it just seemed like the right thing to do. So you were the 680th um, uh, employee to work at Nike. Yeah. Wow. All I can say is wow, because these are just such amazing stories, and it's so cool to see how far Nike and the sport of running have come. Um, you know, I'm 16, so I can't imagine knocking on Nike's doorstep asking to test shoes. Um, but it's so cool that um, you, who back in the 70s and 80s, um, you were a huge fan of the sport. I can connect with you in that way as a 16-year-old in 2021. So it's so cool just to see how the sport has progressed and, you know, share a common interest, which is running. But uh, so you were talking about Phil Knight coming into the stores and all of that. Um, is it cool reading his memoir, Shoe Dog Now, and kind of seeing a background on Nike and hearing some of those stories on how Nike was started, especially because you kind of had a, a small... Um, playing it with testing these shoes and then working at, at the outlet stores. Yeah, it was, yeah, he, his, the, the shoe dog is a thin book and it was written prior to, you know, I think he stopped it when Nike went public. So it was kind of like everything leading up to that point. So there's a lot of things in there that were pretty amazing. And I think the part that I related most to was when I retired from Nike 
you know, started my own innovation consulting firm, but then I also started a company called Red Truck and it was a startup and I was trying to raise money and, you know, get credibility. And so, and basically pay bills and figure out how to get stuff done. And Shoe Dog showed how close Nike came from failing. I mean, it was just like on every, around every corner, there was something that put, could have put them out of business. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was one of the biggest takeaways from that book is just like, wow, that's pretty incredible that, you know, there was a few things that, you know, part of it was luck, part of it was the right people um, that he trusted and, you know, he took some ri- huge risks in kind of pushing the envelope in certain things. And, um, yeah, it was good. I mean, it was a, it was a really inspire- inspiring book. I loved it. Totally. Yeah, that's still one of my favorite books to this day. And I completely agree with you about um, me personally, too. One of the most fascinating uh, parts of the book um, when I was reading, as you were saying, was just um, how much risk was involved and how Nike was so close to not becoming a brand. But now look, years later, they're one of the biggest brands in the market in the world making such a big impact. So that's obviously super cool to look back and read on. Um, But going into your time, time at Nike a little bit more. Can you take us mm-hmm. through some of your positions there and what those positions looked like, what you were in charge of and how you grew from those experiences? Yeah. So, um, so just to kind of back, back up, I ended up working at the athletic department, um, and the Nike promo warehouse kind of during the summers of my college career. Um, I ran it. I went to three schools in four years. So I went, I ran at university of Arizona. I went to school in Europe my junior year. Once I realized I wasn't going to be an Olympian and I better focus on my studies. And, uh, then I finished up at USC. And when I was at USC, I was in international relations and my, uh, my final semester, which was a summer abroad, I went to China for the, it was one of the first, programs at U.S. University went into China. Um, and I turned out to be six, six days a week, seven hours a day of language. So I picked up Mandarin. Um, and that was about the time that Nike uh, made its first, you know, Phil Knight made his first trip into China in, um, I think, the summer of 1983. And when I came back, um, you know, the economy was terrible. I, you know, I was really kind of desperate because species was coming up and I was like, okay, I'm going to go back and work at the store. Just, you know, it's like, uh, I was selling Austrian lead crystal in the breezeway of a department store. And that was really a great, you know, confidence builder for, <laughs> for a, for a USC grad. But I ended up back at the store and, um, I happened to, be with a friend of mine over at university of Portland in a bar called the tea room. And I looked over and it was dime beer night. So you get a tray full of beers for, you know, a dime each like Dixie cups. And I looked over and across the bar, there was still night. And I'm like, what the heck is he doing here? <laughs> so, so I basically took the opportunity because this is what, you know, if you, 
you know, my incubator view methodology takes this perfectly into place where you, you basically, everybody has their own personal resource network, but if you, there's always some type of intersection with somebody. And what I did is I knew Phil Knight had just come back from China. I had spent the summer in China. I visited a Nike factory while I was over there. And so I introduced myself to Phil at this bar and said, Hey, my name is Michael Bergman. You know, I just spent some time in China. And the funny thing about it was there was, there was already another Michael Bergman that worked at the company. And oh, he, wow. was a, he was an oddball. He walked around with a cockatoo on his shoulder. And, you know, so he looked at me and goes, you're not Michael Bergman. I was like, oh, no, no, I know about that one. I'm the other <laughs> Michael Bergman. And the good one. What are you doing? Yeah. No, it wasn't. The guy was a good guy. He's, uh, it was like, uh, so I basically said, well, to be honest, I've got about six resumes floating around your company and I'm working at the store. He goes, oh, give this guy a call. So he was David Chang, who's the head of Nike China. And so I called him. He didn't answer. So I wrote a letter because this is before email and taxes and all that stuff. This is 1983. And I said, hey, I was having drinks with Phil Knight the other night and he recommended that I wasn't lying. Um, recommended that I, uh, you know, reach out to you and talk to you about a job. So, so that is literally how I got restarted in 1983. Man, wow! I, I think Jeff Merrill needs to make a movie on your life because this story is amazing. I mean, so many amazing stories that just make me smile and want to jump off my chair. <laughs> so yeah, so I started. Um, so I started in 80, the uh, November of 83, restarted at the store. And then I was, I, was, I worked in apparel kind of sales for the first um, six months. And then I, about seven months later, I ended up as a Eakin, which is like a tech rep for Nike. So I was an Eakin, which basically I moved to St. Louis, Missouri, and then for a year and a half, Kansas City for a year and a half. So basically I was getting clinics at stores and going to road races. And, and it was kind of during the, the aerobics boom back in the early 80s or mid 80s um, where Reebok was kicking our butts. And, um, and so my job was to try to kind of figure out how to compete with them with our bad aerobic shoes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was, and then in 80s, fall of 86 um all of a sudden they realized that i spoke chinese and they somebody called me from nike international and asked if i wanted to you know basically go overseas so january of 87 i moved to china and at 26 years old was a production manager so i managed manufacturer production at a couple factories in mainland china um, they were government run factories. So it was very communist driven mentality. So it wasn't really, they, they were just starting to open up to the West. So I was in China for three years. Um, when the Taiwanese came in to help manage a lot of the production and development. And then I went to Indonesia for another two and a half, three years. Um, to, and so each time was kind of a startup and then being, 92 ended up 
back in Beaverton as a product developer for um, kids and then basketball and cross training. And so I worked in every, almost every category with the exception of running because I still love doing a lot of stuff in running outside of work that I did not want to work in running at Nike. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. I wanted to learn some new things. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I was in product development for most of my career. In the early, late 90s, I was the global director of product development for all of Nike. Um, and then I worked in, you know, what they called special makeups and quick strike, which is kind of I'm taking some of the 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 learnings from the things I implemented at Nike into putting them into the track and field operations that we're doing with Portland track. So the big friendlies, I took a page out of the book of the, the quick strike process I designed at Nike mm-hmm. of getting products to athletes quick, quicker than the normal cycle. Um, and then I was in tennis for seven years invented a rubber compound and then I was the global director of sustainability my last two years for footwear mm-hmm. and then I tried to start an in-house employee-led innovation center inside of Nike called Incubator U and they didn't quite get it so that was 30 years and I decided to retire so that's my that's my story. That's your Nike story. Okay, one last, maybe one or two more questions about Nike. So, as you said, at um, your very top, your last few years at Nike, you were the global director of footwear product sustainability. Um, and uh-huh. you, as you were saying, worked in a lot of the footwear um, sections of Nike. So, what's it like seeing Nike now being this global powerhouse from a running standpoint, whether it be the new dragonflies or vaporflies, or just seeing them kind of take over the game of um, footwear innovation, what's that like um, to see from your perspective as somebody who was in the company so long, working in very similar roles? Yeah, I think I, Nike has always led and in, in pushed the envelope in innovation, whether it's you know air or foams or you know, even, you know, when we, when we tried shocks, that wasn't really a great innovation, <laughs> especially, you know, the Nike shocks that, you know, we were, we kind of forced it onto some tennis players. that wasn't really a great smart idea. Um, so, yeah, so I think there is always a risk, but the, the risk is planned. And so I would say that a lot of that, there's incredible resources available to be able to be able to execute on that. Um, I would say it's, you know, Nike brand is so strong. You could do anything. And, um, and I, and I think personally, I think that, um, you know, I think that the, there, there are a lot of brands out. I think it's great that there's a lot of brands out there right now that are focusing. They might not have the technological innovation, but I do think that they're really focusing on the core runner, the elite, the elite runner, um, you know, the, you know, people that are out there running every day, you know, because I think, um, you know, and, and I, 
you know, I try all the shoes. So I think that I think competition is healthy. And I think there's each brand has its own, you know, area of expertise and focus. Nike's is innovation and brand. So, and, and also, you know, just the direct to consumer piece. They're just, they're just rocking it, mm-hmm. which is on, you know, the stock went up like $30 a share last week. So, wow. That was, it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But, but their processes are, you know, you know, second to none. So, in the supply chain. So, so in yeah. your 31 years at Nike, what are some of the biggest lessons you learned? Um, I would say, uh, really folk, you know, uh, performance, you know, the things that I, that stuck with me that I, you know, I still have instilled into my, you know, ethos is, you know, performance product for the athletes and that shouldn't ever be compromised. And I think at times just, you know, efficiency, you know, maybe someone not knowing the product or not knowing the sport as well. Sometimes that goes by the wayside. And I think that's a, a shortcoming of certain things that could happen at Nike currently, because there's a lot of people that have the tribal and industrial knowledge. It got the company to where it is today um, that are gone because they don't, you know, part of it is that, you know, they, they don't, I think the current brand might not value that as much as I think they should. Mm-hmm. Personally. So, um, so I'd say, um, yeah. So I think that performance product for the athletes and, and, and I've taken that, I think brand is such a strong element and Nike's brand is unbelievable. It's, it's just one of the strongest brands in the world. And you could, you know, back in the early nineties, you know, we were making products that, you know, they were great products. We did sport training, um, baseball training, football training, you know, all these and I, I would say you could put a swoosh on a piece of poop and it would sell. <laughs> You're so, probably right. Because it's like, it was Nike and everybody aspired to wear it. And so, and so, but at the same time, you know, it was important for me as a product developer, product creation, to make sure that the promise was fulfilled in delivering the performance elements of the product and not sacrificing it. And there were some, there's always pressure that happened, um, you know, to make something right, you know, you know, glitzy and, and like one of the most, uh, you know, memorable ones was, you know, a tennis shoe from Maria Sharapova where some brand person really thought it would be a cool thing to have Savorsky crystals on the upper of her tennis shoe. So as she started to drag her feet on the tennis court, the crystals would scratch the court. It's like, um, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so it's, yeah, so there are certain things that, you know, were not, you know, there were other failures that, you know, you can continue to learn from. So, mm-hmm. um, and I, yeah, so I'd say the lessons learned, um, and especially in my last two and a half, three years, um, I was very close with Jeff Hollister. Um, and, you know, I was with him a lot during the last years of his life. And when he was 
super sick and he would tell he was the the heart and soul of the company that you know he really wanted things he didn't necessarily like all the some of the changes that were happening so he was trying to hold on to that culture and the heritage and you know and so as soon as he passed um i you know i was with him that the day of and but i i remember going back to work and basically from that point on every decision i made was based on what jeff would do and it was not necessarily good for me politically but it was the most liberating the absolute right thing to do for the product for the athletes and you know and i was able to get so much done and 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 i look back and i was able to hold my head high you know as i walked out as a retired employee and i knew i had given it my best and so i've continued that you know focus i mean he still inspires me to this day in the work i'm doing in track and field it's like okay what would jeff do here mm-hmm. he'd make sure that these communities are taken care of he wasn't about the you know the big glitzy you know beats diamond at he the was, bottom of your tennis shoe yeah exactly so anyway yeah so that's kind of i would say performance product for the athletes mm-hmm. and, and keeping that filter is the is a core piece so. Mm-hmm. Two quick questions about Jeff Hollister. Number one, is that um, who Hollister Trail is named after on Nike's campus? And then also, what yeah. was his role in the company? Jeff was one of the first uh, track and field promo guys. Okay, um, that's what I thought, but I yeah, wasn't he, sure. Yeah, yeah, he's employee number four. So he and Nelson Ferris were the guys that would basically drive the Volkswagen bus around and make sure and, you know, give shoes out, you know, at meets in California and a couple of hippies that would just show up at track meets and, you know, kind of build the brand mm-hmm. by, you know, they were, they were the first warriors out there and, um, yeah, Playing the base. Always, yeah, they, they were, and both of them are just amazing individuals. Now since I walked with him now and then, and, um, they're just, just amazing individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still very close to, um, Jeff's, you know, kids, Tracy and uh, Kylie. So that's awesome. Super, super cool stories. Okay. So going into kind of your next phase of life, which you're, um, currently still running, you started this startup company incubator U. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what went into the decision to start incubator U, along with what your mission is there? Sure. Yeah. So Incubator U initially started when I want, I, I wanted, I had a friend at Nike that I was explaining how I was able to get a lot of things done. And she just looked at me and she said, if you could teach people how you do this, that's your retirement. And I was like, Oh, maybe I should think about that. So, um, so I made one more attempt of creating an employee-led innovation center at Nike. So as a long-term employee, I was a coach, I'm a dad. I would get all these young, brilliant employees that would come to me with an idea, but there was nowhere for it to go. So I was like, hey, I want to start this kind of incubator university. So basically someone could bring their ideas and then I could figure out a way for it to 
embed into the organization and see if it's a, the next big idea because, you know, so that was my initial process. And I got about 70% of the way there, had a building, had a design of the space. But then uh, my VP sponsor, she got reassigned and, and it was clear that they didn't get it. So that's when I kind of made the decision to retire. So the, the key of retiring was I walked out on my own two feet. I had great relationships. I wasn't walked out. I wasn't fired. I didn't lose my job. I did it on my own. So that, so I went out and I branded Incubator U and it really was about, you know, fearless innovation together. Um, you know, uh, basically a lot of the, you know, diversity drives innovation. Uh, the idea is like permission to dream. And those are elements that have been part of my brand foundation from the beginning. And so in the last seven years, which I can't believe it's been seven, I've, I've just continued to push, you know, do projects and build organizations and, uh, Portland Track being one of them. And, um, now I'm deeply embedded into a lot of track and field things going on in Oregon. Um, but what, what I figured out is I have this five step methodology and I'm actually publishing a book. So it's coming out at the end of the year. Oh, wow. But the five, yeah, the five steps are, you know, they're all I words. So imagine is, Hey, dream big, take off, take off any barriers of what can't be done. Okay. Number two is identify. So your personal resource map is different than mine. So, but look at the people you call for, you know, advice or, you know, it could be a coach, it could be a professor, it could be, or it could be a teacher, it could be your parents, it could be a face or, you know, some, even a friend, relative. Then you kind of say, hey, I've got this big idea. I know you know something about it. Do you know someone who knows someone? So there's this intersection piece, okay? So then the third piece is initiate. And it's like, just do it. Just, you know, just go ahead and that's how we did the big friendly. Like, hey, we don't know if it's going to work. We're gonna, let's just try it. Take a step into the unknown. Work. You never know what's yeah. going to happen. Right. It could either fail or it could not. So, so what? Mm -hmm. Totally. So, you learn from the so, failure if you fail. Yeah, but it's, and it's, and it, or you adjust. And so there's the, you know, so it's imagine, identify, initiate, implement, where all of a sudden there's some framework for you to work with. And you're like, oh, okay, I've got this law, I've got this framework and I can do this. And then you just do it over and over and then you, um, integrate. So it becomes operational. And so that's the five steps. And, and in the book, I actually talk about, you know, just, you know, things from the big friendly to I invented a rubber compound to, you know, so I've got way more case studies than I know what to do with. In fact, <laughs> publishers like more, normally people don't have enough. You have too many. And so my goal is that people take that and see that it's really innovation from the ground up. You don't have to be Einstein to innovate. You just have to have an idea. You have to have a brief, you have to have, you know, a um, network and you have to, you know, be, you know, a little bit fearless and giving it a try.
Um, and so those are three initial steps. So I'm, I'm continuing to implement it in all the things I'm doing right now. It's <laughs> like insane. So yeah, so that's incubator you. Awesome. Yeah, that's um, some great advice and obviously an amazing mission statement. Um, I have to ask about this book. Are you done writing the book? And what was the process like writing a book for the first time? Yeah, it's, um, so I've got the first draft. So I, I'm working with a publisher that actually done a great job of, you know, we did voice editing initially and then a ghostwriter that helped me kind of craft like the framework for the book and now I'm needing to add a little bit more content to it so I'm kind of in the second draft right now awesome and what I'm finding myself is I've I've been too busy in the past month to do that so I gotta go lock myself in a log cabin where there's no internet the the old school way exactly nice nice okay um, so as you said, you've been super busy this last month. A lot of that had to do with Portland Track, but then you also have um, this thing with Incubator U. So I have to ask, with all of these projects going on, you have so many, how do you manage your time and while doing that, stay in the present moment, not getting worried about the past or future? Yeah, I, I would say, um, again, it's that, I, I think the methodology really you know, plays into that, where... Um, you know, I use the tools I use are, you know, I've got Slack and Google and, you know, and, but a part of it is the, um, you know, in building that framework, um, of each project, I have, I don't have to control everything. I don't control anything. I basically put into place the right people to get the job done. And so what I'm doing is, and that's what incubator you is like, Hey, you know, um, I'm building a track at a music complex out in Maupin, Oregon. I don't know if you knew that, but in, it's like a world-class track facility I'm building in Maupin. Oh, like, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. You'll have to, yeah. And so that's, so, but it was a cinder track it overlooks the Deschutes river, but the town, it, it has 450 people in it. But during the summer, they get 80 to a hundred thousand people like because they're the best fly fishing and um and rafting in the state and um so basically we uh you know so on that project i basically helped them dream you know i you know imagined then on the identify piece i basically reached out to my network i've got friends in the construction business i I know the people at baynon i know i I we I know that we could put on meets there, like through Portland Track, you know. So I have this. All of a sudden, we've kind of built this, you know, um, structure, and we're building this track. So next year, prior to the world, we'll be having world class track meets overlooking this the Shoots River Canyon and live streaming it, because the the town itself has a fiber optic network. So I'm taking. So the idea being. Um, I'm not doing the construction. I'm not doing the project management, but I have people that that I've attracted to the project because they're attracted to it and the vision, and they want to be part of it. And it, it kind of, um, you know. Has culminated in this amazing track facility that you get to put on world-class meets. Yeah. 
and we did the same thing two weeks ago at McKenzie River. We basically the track existed. The town got burnt, was burned. To the I don't know if you saw the McKenzie International, but you know it's like I'm looking at the track and field news e newsletter, and like our little meet was in the weekly results. You know, <laughs> Charlie Hunter ran one forty four. Yeah, made the Olympic you team. Know? Yeah, we have three people that made you know that were Olympians in that. So anyway, yeah, so that. So basically, um, yeah, so, so I started in Portland Track five years ago um, as the president and, you know, used that as a, it's kind of a vehicle to really experiment and use some of the, you know, do some of the things that I've applied in incubator use. So like in, you know, Jeff Merrill, you know, once we set up the brand, so at Portland Track's brand, mantra every decision we make as an organization is about athletes first it's not about sponsors it's not about you know fans it's like everything we do is based on what is the need for the athlete and and so basically that has manifested itself in all the things we've done from Tracklandia to the Portland Track Festival to the pay-per-view to the prize money all this stuff if you can see it, it, it's all been filtered through athletes first mm-hmm. and, and, and all of a sudden that builds trust with the eight coaches, athletes, teams. They know that we're agnostic. We're not, we're not a Nike thing or a Hoka thing or an on thing, or, you know, it's like, Hey, we're here for the athletes. I don't care who they run for. We want to give them a fair shot. So, so that's mm-hmm. kind of the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we've obviously mentioned Portland Track a bunch. You just kind of took us through um, some of your missions. Um, firstly, athletes first. But I'm interested in how you became the president of Portland Track five years ago. And then, additionally, for a listener who probably doesn't know this, what are some of the biggest things that go into hosting a meet and putting one on? Yeah. So, um, so five years. So Craig Rice was the president. He was he was the original <clears throat> you know, kind of founder of Portland Track, and it it started as a local middle school meet, and then we had some local, you know, elites or not elites, but you know, superstars. And then over time, it evolved into a pretty good regional meet, and and then um, but the unique thing about it, he's done a great job of. Up until 2019, the Portland Track Festival blended middle school, high school, college, and pros. It's a middle distance to distance meet. And you have literally your high, your middle school kids warming up on the infield with their heroes. It's like the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So, they, so it's not, and it's very different than the Prefontaine Classic, which is a brand event that, you know, it was a, a diamond league and very pomp and circumstance and televised. And ours is much more of a grassroots level, you know, organization and meet. None of us get paid, you know, in the organization. It's all a volunteer deal. Um, and so Portland Track Festival has always been like the weekend of the NCAAs. And so a lot of times we would, that would be in Eugene and we'd get people that would be eliminated from the NCAAs, but then 
they were preparing for pre, you know, so, so we'd have pros and then cast offs from NCAAs and then we'd have high school meets would be done, middle school. And then the next stump down twilight is a, was always kind of a last chance qualifier meet for USA's world's Olympic trials. So that was, we would always put that right before the deadline for hitting time standards. So those were our two marquee events. And then we also have a youth meet that has grown to about a thousand kids. Um, and then in the fall, Tom Rothenberger and I started a middle school cross country meet called PDXC. And um, we went out and got a grant to pay for the whole thing. And no kid has to pay a dime. It's a middle school meet where, you know, PE classes, you, the, the teams that score are middle school. You have to go to the school. Uh, club kids can run in it, but they don't score as, um, you know, so it's truly a middle school championship. And um, we've grown that from like 300 kids to, I think in 2019, we had over 2,000. Wow, that's amazing. All around, the, all around the state. And we've had, it was at Western Oregon University because that was the only place that could house you know, 400 kids on a starting line. (laughs) Yeah. So those are the four meets that we normally would have Mm -hmm. when the pandemic hit. And that's when we came up with the big friendlies and, and really there were enough athletes living in or in the Northwest in Oregon that still needed times to keep their contracts fresh and whatever. And so we worked, we, identified we found places that we could host meets but we couldn't have fans we had already we figured out we could live stream it with our Tracklandia film crew um we just needed a few things like an internet connection we needed a track we needed covid testing we couldn't have fans we put in strict requirements we only had you know, no more than 50 people total at the meet, skeleton staff, and a limited number of events. Um, and so we basically had our first one. I think Donovan ran like 333 or something. It was like some, his first 1500. He ran like 335 <laughs> or 334. It's like, are you kidding me? Um, and then, then we went up to McKenzie River because that was the only track that we could find that was open. And with this, we had to build rails. We had to actually figure out how to get rails built to make them official with the time standards. And then the next three, we had at Newburgh High School. Um, and that was, but we didn't announce where they were. So people didn't just randomly showed up. We didn't, we had them like on a weeknight. It was kind of like this secret gathering of, coaches and athletes mm-hmm. here's the address yeah here's the address um run fast don't tell don't tell anyone including your family mm-hmm. so yeah so that and so that again that's again the process where or the methodology where we took a risk and was like oh well this worked let's fine-tune it and we ended up doing four more and then you know we had the portland track festival and Stumptown this year, and we live streamed them. They were a bigger production, but then Dathan Ritzenheim and had asked us 
hey, I've got a bunch, a few people that are trying to still hit some marks. Can you guys put on a meet for us? And so we said, and that was like literally two and a half, three weeks notice. And that's how we pulled off the McKinsey International. We went up, I went up there and met with the team at the track. And um, I don't know if you know much about, but the, that town got devastated by wildfires and the entire town was destroyed, but the track was, it survived. And so, you know, Baynon came in and cleaned it. The rail, we repaired the rail. We collaborated with this innovation group out of Eugene to get a Wi-Fi connection up there so we could live stream it. It was, and I don't know if you've seen the the pictures and the videos or this. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you should, KEZI did a great piece on that. But you can just tell the how heartfelt the community was about you know it's like hey we're coming back mm-hmm. we we feel great that this you know and people it was like the field of dreams people came up from the Olympic trials had never been up there and they're like what the heck is this this is amazing <laughs> and then, so anyway so it was a and so I'm going there on Thursday to drop off a check for three thousand dollars to the community so wow that's awesome so what does it mean to you to put on these meets um like obviously there's so much that goes into them especially this mckenzie one that you just spoke about and told us a little bit about um what's the feeling like afterward when everything comes together and it's truly a masterpiece what's that like it's i mean i think we've we've created such a great um brand and organization with people that just care and we have like the most amazing photographers that want to share their their media with us we have meet officials that want to be part of it we have the trust of coaches and athletes that they're able to run in a relaxed but highly professional environment knowing their times will count and they're grateful. They are so grateful for these opportunities. And so that, to me, that's worth it all. Mm-hmm. And um, before the McKinsey International, you know, I was walking around and, you know, uh, it was really cool because it didn't matter. There were athletes from, you know, NAZ Elite and On and Nike and Wassell and, you know, Brooks. And, you know, I was like, you know, they're all like hanging out in the picnic area together. I mean, it was like, they didn't care what brand they were with. They were all runners. Yeah. And to me, that's the, be- that's the beauty of it. It's just like, hey, let's not, let's not make such a to-do about it. They're all the same. They're all trying, they're all cheering for each other. And, and maybe the pandemic made them, rip. I think the friendlies really kind of, act, you know, um, cemented that where they realized we were doing it for them and for the right reasons. We didn't, it cost last those five meets. It cost us about $15,000 total to put all five meets on last year. That's crazy. Mm $15,000. Yeah. It's a big chunk of change. And most, yeah, most of that was like porta potties and timing systems. And, you know, it was like, None of us got paid, but anyway, but it was worth it. And, yeah. And again, you build the trust and now 
you know, um, we're, you know, we're viewed as a, a truly authentic, caring organization that is, you know, doing things for the right, you know, right reason. Totally. So. Yeah. Running is such a pure sport. And, um, as you were saying earlier, it's so cool that you can have, as you were saying, in some of the opportunities that Portland track, um, gives out, like you can have a middle schooler warming up to Craig Angles or whoever the athlete athlete might be. You would never get that in the NBA. You would never get that in the MLB. Um, running is so unique. And I think that's why people are so invested in it. Um, and like someone like you, you have such a huge impact on the sport, but you're in it for the right reasons. You're not in it to be paid a huge amount. In fact, you are um, paying huge amounts to put these events on for people and to help um, support the sport of running. So thank you for all of that, especially me growing up in the sport of running in 2021 and beyond. Um, you definitely have shaped my sport moving forward. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, and I think it's great. I mean, I love seeing, um, you know, people like yourself, you know, in using the mediums and the technologies that you have. I mean, I admire you putting on a podcast and you have a YouTube channel and, you know, you analyze races. And I think that in itself is fantastic. And so, you know, I, I think the sport needs more people like you and also you know to, to kind of bridge that gap i mean we're you know uh, i think that there's you know runners are the same it hasn't changed that much you still have to put one foot in front of the other you have to put your shoes on one at a time <laughs> like so it's not it's really not that you know you know technology has changed yes um but i think there's you know but but i think there's ability you know the ability from a social media standpoint and you know the thing that i would you know i don't like seeing is you know if someone has a great performance celebrate it don't don't assume that they're cheating i mean that's the thing that absolutely you know that that's the thing that just distress distresses me about you know you know i mean there's this 80 percent of it's positive social media but then you know <clears throat> There are people out there that are, you know, like Hobbs Kessler. That's friggin', he came up to our meet at McKenzie, and I talked to him for quite a while. And he's like, he and the family are great. And of course, you know, he's like, he's not getting caught up in it. But at the same time, you know, I'm sure there's haters out there. And it's, you know, you know, Galen had the same stuff. He, I've known Galen since he was in sixth grade. He's a great, yeah, he's a great guy. He's a good father. You know, it's like. I know his family and it's not, you know, and it's one of these things where, and he, and he, he even said it, he goes, the thing I don't really, cause he doesn't pay attention to any of that stuff, the social stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and he basically said the thing he doesn't like is in the sport, we eat our young. Like somebody does well. And then, you know, all of a sudden people jump on it and assume that something's wrong. Totally. No, they might just be freaking good. Yeah. Over it. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a great discussion have to have. Coach. Yeah, because I, I think a lot of these young athletes, 
um, don't do as well because they have enormous amounts of pressure or get swallowed up in all of the negativity. But one quote I found the other day from the good old Kobe Bryant um, is he said, haters are a good problem to have. Nobody hates the good ones. They hate the great ones, which I found a little bit amusing. Um, so I think for yeah. all of these athletes, Obviously, you don't want to have haters, but it shows that you are doing something right. And as you were saying, people should appreciate um, good performances. Um, anybody that is looking for a reason for these athletes to fail or fail a drug test, they're obviously not a true fan of the sport and not in it for the right reasons, as we were saying. Um, but going back to our conversation of kind of... Um, just bridging the gap between the old and the young and just everything track and field and social media. Um, track and field is the number one most popular sport in high school. And I think cross country is the sixth most, the sixth most popular sport in running. Um, so it's annoying when you see the local newspaper or websites not report on it as much because it's such a big deal because you know, track and field, if you have a son or a daughter in the sport, you're going to be invested in them and invested in the sport and you're going to want to learn more about it. So I think a lot of these news outlets and companies are kind of um, doing track and field and cross country in the sport of running an injustice by not reporting on it because it is such a big sport and so many people care about it. So that's why I appreciate all you guys are doing over at Portland Track, making these things free or doing like a PPV yeah. model where the athletes benefits, as you were saying, um, athletes first. Like I did a race commentary video with Lise Cranny. You guys were generous in letting me use your race footage, but I asked her the question, um, like what does a PPV model mean to you? And she went on for like a minute about how cool it was, how it benefits the athletes, how it's cool to know that someone cares about them. So that was really, really, really cool. Yeah, and I think that was one of the, you know, I think it's still new enough and and we're re again we're we're redefining we're kind of defining how we want to do pay per view. So McKenzie, you know, it was pro because it was right in the middle of the Olympic trials, and you know the marketing lead up to it probably wasn't you know as big. But if we, you know, again if we do the pay per view for Port our marquee events like Portland Track Festival in Stumptown, and there are athletes that no no they're going to run in it and the lead up to it then we can actually talk about these matchups or and then and then have the athletes saying hey if you're going to run in this we're going to and the pay-per-view is big you're, this is the amount the purse that's going to go to you guys so mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's there's motivation for them to you know do that and mm -hmm. so and we actually yeah so we yeah so we have we've stuck to our model pretty pretty clearly um we had the opportunity we were in conversation with jesse williams and for a while on his pro track series and then um the american track league came in and you know they had an espn package and 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 we just we said hey this is not what we want to do we want to we want to stick with our pay-per-view it might not be as big as espn but we want to own our own content so we can share it with people like yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you don't, you, yeah. So basically we own, it's an, it, and just a, a, an interesting fact on our, uh, on Portland Track Festival, we had 75 media credential requests this year. Wow. it's a That's lot. 75. 
So we, so now we're going to actually have to put a process together to make sure the right people are there. And, and you know, it's like, man, it's a good problem to have, but it's like, but part of our media thing is like, Hey, you shoot at our meat. We get, we get access to your photos. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can't, you can't profit off our, and, and so anyway, so that's kind of, you know, so we're actually doing it, I think the right way. Um, and I think the meets like McKenzie, you know, maybe the smaller pop-ups aren't necessarily as, you know, critical on a pay-per-view. I mean, it, the, the pay-per-view for that was to help benefit the community, but, um, you know, the, the resources, you know, on that, we would like the big friendlies, we live streamed them and it, you know, it was an hour and a half meet didn't take a lot of resources, but then everybody saw it. We had, you know, hundreds of thousands of views. So, which is what we want the sport to have. For sure. Impacting each and every person who watches, including me who watched it. And it was obviously inspired by the performances. And it's obviously cool when you can make track accessible and cheap or even free in that case in live streaming on YouTube. But this has been a delightful conversation. I personally have learned so much, um, but we're running uh, a little late on time. So let's move into yeah. the final segments of the show. It's called the rapid fire questions, also known as the going to the well segment. So Michael, are you ready for these seven quick questions? Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. N number one, favorite piece of running gear or technology. Oh, I like the, basically, oh man, um, the, you know, I, I love the Nike running shorts. That's it. So, me too. Tights, me too. The tights. Yeah. The tights. The tights. I don't know what you call them. Okay. Okay. Number two, what is the scariest animal you've encountered while on a run? Well, that's easy. A rattlesnake. Ooh, that's not fun. Okay. Number three, favorite. Thought... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I fell over it on a run in, when I was at the University of Arizona. Oh, so, that is not fun. Not good, <laughs> oh, man, yeah. that is not fun. Okay, number three, favorite place to go in po Portland? Um, Forest Park. Forest Park. Is, uh, yeah. That's what every single um, Portland-based runner has told me, so I def it's definitely spoken highly of on the Running Effect podcast. Okay, number four, yeah. what is your favorite thing about the sport of running? Um, I just get inspired about, you know, the athletes and their performances and, and, you know, and also how it connects all the way down to youth. I mean, to me, that's, a, that's the biggest piece there. Mm -hmm, for sure. Okay, number five, what book has had the most impact on your life? Um, I, there's a book I read while I was at Nike, and then I actually worked for the company for a year after I retired, but it's, I would say, The Medici Effect. And it was written by Franz Johansson, and it's based on um, diversity drives innovation. And I love the book because I applied that methodology when I was a high school coach. I coached at Central Catholic as the head track coach, applied the Medici effect to my coaching staff, built a program, won a state title in my third year, and then the Medici group out of New York did a case study on me. Wow. On how I how I applied the Medici effect in athletics. That's awesome. And then I worked for him. Then I worked for them for a year after I retired <laughs> out of New York. 
I definitely have to check that book out because I've never heard of it, but it sounds like a, a really good one and I'm sure I could learn from it. Okay, number six, yeah. what are you most looking forward to in the next few months? Um, I'm looking forward to, actually, we go to this little log cabin off the grid up in Colorado and I'm, I just bought four for uh, a, a bike rack that carries both my road and my mountain bike. And I'm looking forward to getting up there riding and riding. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Number seven, last but not least, if you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh man. It's a <laughs> one meal. Uh, I know it's a tough one. We ask tough <laughs> questions on this podcast. Check, uh, you know, I think I'm having it tonight. Uh, you know, basically a chicken leg with, uh, you know, with uh, sautéed spinach Ooh. Um, on the Traeger. Sounds awesome. So okay. Little, yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael, it has been a pleasure speaking with you, learning from you, and hearing all about your life and career. So thank you so much for your generosity and your time. And thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Look forward to more. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Running Effect. If you enjoyed it, or even if you didn't, please like, subscribe, and share to help us out. It would really mean a lot. It takes super quick to hit that red subscribe button, and it helps us out tremendously. I appreciate you guys listening to this episode. I don't take your guys' attention for granted, and I hope you learned um, something from today's episode that you can apply to your life, hopefully making you a more productive well-rounded person and human being um, runner as well because that's what this podcast is all about but thank you for listening i'll see you guys in the next episode god bless you all 